The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. In this episode, my guests and I are going to have a great conversation, and I believe that conversation provides answers to some of the biggest questions for civil engineers in their careers, namely, should I get a master's degree or not? What are the differences between working for a small or large organization, and should I stay on the technical path or go into the managerial path? I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I will be talking with Matthew Lowe, Licensed Professional Engineer, Senior Vice President at Hoyle Tanner & Associates. Matt's 30-year career includes over 23 years at Hoyle Tanner, where he has been the Director of Engineering Operations since 2015. And again, in this episode, we're going to talk about some of the challenges in the workforce today. We're going to get into infrastructure opportunities going forward. We'll talk a little bit about how companies are handling and navigating the remote work situation and a lot of very interesting topics, as well as those questions that I mentioned earlier. Before we jump in, this is a free show and our sponsors help us keep it free. Now I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Collier's Engineering and Design. Collier's Engineering and Design is a multidiscipline engineering firm with over 1,800 employees in 63 offices nationwide and growing fast. Collier's Engineering and Design maintains an internal culture that is nurtured through the promotion of integrity, collaboration, and socialization. Their employees enjoy hybrid work environments, continuous career advancement, health and wellness offerings, and programs and projects that have a positive impact on society. Collier's Engineering and Design stays on the cutting edge of technology and their entrepreneurial approach to expansion provides personal and professional development opportunities across the firm. Leadership's dedication to the well-being of their employees and their families is demonstrated throughout the wide range of benefits and programs available to them. For more information, visit the career page on their website at colliersengineering.com. I also want to mention that we've been building a lot of project management, learning and development programs for consulting firms. We take our core PM curriculum and we customize it for your firm. We work with a committee there and we're able to not only customize it, but deliver it for you within a couple of months. So if you're interested in project management training of any kind, you can give us a call at 800-920-4007 or visit our website at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and just click the contact us button. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'd like to welcome our guest onto the podcast for today. Matthew Lowe is a licensed professional engineer and senior vice president at Royal Tanner and Associates. Matt, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Really appreciate it. So, Matt, let's start off by maybe just telling us a little bit about your company, what services you offer, and, and your role within the company, what you do on a daily basis. Oil Tanner is a, uh, a medium-sized firm, 100 employees. We practice really core civil engineering services. So we provide civil and structural engineering at airports. We get into municipal utilities, water and wastewater, ground transportation, roads and bridges. We're, I'd say medium-sized, but we're kind of act like a small company, but have a lot of the capabilities of, of some larger companies. And we're spread out mostly in northern New England, and, and we've got a Florida presence as well. Core civil engineering services, environmental permitting, planning, some of those types of things. In addition to being senior vice president here at the firm, I'm, I'm on the board of directors and 
and what we call the director of engineering operations. So it's essentially our COO position. So what I get into on a daily basis is really a wild card of things. It's, it can be human resources, it's finances, it's project quality control, it's hiring and resourcing and staffing, it's client liaison, client management. So it's a whole host of things. I manage our division managers, which we have uh, five of them that manage those disciplines that I just referenced. And I also manage our marketing team. So our sales operations and our engineering operations are, are both uh, under my purview. And I want to talk a little bit about career progression in the civil engineering industry. I think it's an important topic because I think a lot of engineers in today's world, you know, we hear about this great resignation, people are moving around. I think one of the things engineering professionals are often looking for is some kind of stable career path, or at least understanding their career paths and their career progression. So I'd like to get your thoughts a little bit about on the career progression of civil engineers in today's industry. And we can also talk a little bit about your progression, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are interested in maybe getting into the executive leadership role and kind of how that came about for you. Today, people are very interested in what their career opportunities are, maybe more so than ever before in, in my career anyway. And I failed to mention this is my 30th year of being in the industry, always as a consulting engineer. I've never been on the public side. I've always been on the private side. And our firm deals mostly about 85% with public clients and about 15% with private. So we've got a little bit of a mix there. And sometimes that affects career goals as well. But a couple of years ago, we reading the writing on the wall that people really wanted to know what their ladder could be or what their progression could be. We did create a, a pretty robust document that allows people to see the skills and commitments that we're looking for in order to progress into different stages of their career, maybe from an engineer to a project engineer to a senior engineer or a planner to a senior planner, but also on the marketing and the business development side. And we have an accounting department. So, you know, what are those positions? I think people want to know it's a difficult, it's a slippery slope, Anthony. You try not to write everything down. You, you need to keep enough vagueness that people can zig and zag a little bit without having to feel like it's a checkbox to get to their next but I think the most important part of it is, is not necessarily those written documents and what it says you need to do to level up, if you will, but it's the discussions. It's really the discussions about the interests and the passion, what somebody really wants to get into. I think flexibility on the part of the organization has to be at the forefront. Rigidness and career development really isn't it's not a one size fits all. You don't have a bunch of drafting tables lined up from end to end on the building anymore. You come in and you put your lunch pail down and you, you know, it's just not that way anymore. There's so many opportunities in technology and marketing and branding and, and all those types of things that even engineers can get into those career paths. It's a really important, I think it's a, a little bit of a, an affliction in our industry too, where the management path tends to get more recognition and rewards than the technical path. So we've really tried to message in the last few years that it's really engineering that we sell or planning, or the technical aspect that we sell, we have to be excellent at that. And we need people that want to be excellent at that. So we're really trying to message that don't say you want to be a project manager if you really don't want to be a project manager, that there's other ways to progress. And I think that that's really important for our industry to, to know is that we don't want to glorify management positions or sales positions just because you, people think that's the only way you can get recognized and move up the career ladder. As far as my career progression, I went through a lot of the pretty standard progression, structural engineering, roadway engineering, to a project engineer. And then I got introduced to project management by real trial by fire. 
as a very young engineer with maybe seven or eight years of experience, not a lot of mentoring and struggled with that for quite a few years. And then my interest really got peaked with the business side of things too. You know, well, how does all this that we're working hard on to design great projects and manage projects, how does it all go into the soup? How does it work as a business? It's a business. We're not making widgets. So we're selling ideas. We're selling consultation. We're selling solutions, brain power, really. And how do you make money at that? How do you grow? How do you do that? So I really started to push myself into getting more knowledge. And I had some mentors that were really helpful in letting me explore some of those aspects of the business and be able to ask more questions about it. It's not for everybody, for sure. Some people would like to be engineers for their entire career. And I, I haven't really done a lot of engineering for about 10 years. You know, It's mostly been on the management side. And there are opportunities in every engineering firm for that. Depending on the size of the firm, you might be able to get there sooner than later. Larger firms are going to be run by people with strict business backgrounds, probably. But a medium-sized or a small-sized firm might be an engineer who progresses into more of the business aspects. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there to unpack. I think a couple of points that I definitely want to follow up on is we've done some work at EMI, working with some companies and building these career pathways and roadmaps. And I think to your point, one of the things you really got to pay attention to is that flexibility. Because while I think it is very important to show people that there are pathways that they can take within the organization, people want to see that, right? They don't want to necessarily get pigeonholed either into something where you know they can't make a lateral movement in the world of civil engineering, quite frankly. There's a lot of things you can do. I mean, you can start out like I did it in the field survey and then got my engineering license. You can start out as a CAD designer and then get into engineering or architecture or whatever landscape architecture. There's lots of different So that's a valuable point to make. And I think the other point that you hit on that is really something that I would say every professional in the AE world has probably crossed their mind at one time or another is the whole idea of that kind of fork in the road of technical or managerial in your career path. And I do think. Unfortunately, to your point, the technical track is looked down upon by many people, or at least it's thought of as being lesser than the management path by many people. It's a problem. And I'm happy to hear that in your organization, you're promoting the technical path and letting people know that it's just as valuable as the managerial path. And I think that that's something for those of you listening out there, that when you're thinking about elevating your professionals or creating these career pathways or having annual performance reviews or conversations around people's future, promoting the idea that we sell technical services, we need highly skilled technical professionals, and there needs to be room for them to become a VP, senior VP, director, whatever your terminology is in your firm. The idea that you can only become a VP you know, if you are in management is not a great thing for a firm because it can definitely, I think, demotivate people that are technically savvy. I think to Matt's point, Somebody may not even proclaim their passion for technical work because they're afraid that they're not supposed to go down that path. Like the idea is you're always supposed to go into management. And so I'm glad that you touched on that, Matt, because I feel like it's such a critical thing that companies need to communicate to people. Otherwise, you're going to lose out on people really developing those technical skills. If people are in the, the wrong position, they can get frustrated. They may not have the courage to speak up and talk about it with their supervisor. And we're really trying to break down those walls and have those conversations. You know, if somebody wants to explore being a project manager, they're not quite 100% sure if, if it's for them. Maybe they try it a couple of times. And then you have the conversation and say, we've had a few of them say, this isn't for me, but thanks for letting me give it a shot. But now I know more about it. I really want to be an excellent technical engineer. That right there, 
has so much value because what you don't want to do is have people in the wrong positions and get frustrated and leave. Maybe they could have had a very successful career path at your organization, but they might leave because they feel maybe they're embarrassed or they don't want to, that they're, they're on the wrong path. Who knows? Could be any host of things. So just having that open dialogue, having those supervisor and uh, teammate conversations is really where it needs to start and get rid of the stigma that uh, there's no advancement potential. But we have vice presidents from our marketing teams, our accounting teams, engineering, management, there's advancement. I think a lot of firms are probably headed in that direction where they can breed success through any number of those paths. Because let's face it, if there aren't excellent technical engineers, the salespeople aren't going to have anything to sell, not more than once anyway. The business end isn't, you know, they're going to be trying to figure things out. So it's a big teamwork circle has to work that way. A lot of consulting firms' work is repeat business from clients. And that only happens if you have that sound technical work and a great product that you're putting out. And I think another good point that kind of matches mentioned there is you can promote to technical professionals to stay on the technical track. And I think that's if they're passionate about it. But I think you also do need to be open to them saying, well, what if I'm not sure and letting them try something else? And I think that knowing that they could try something but not be married to it is also beneficial. I know a lot of companies out there with their interns or with their recent graduates, they have rotational programs where they can work in maybe a couple of different divisions or try out different kinds of projects. If you're listening, whether you're a recent graduate, maybe you look for that in your company or you ask for opportunities or if you're a leader in a company, maybe you look for ways to get people to try different things. Because at the end of the day, you may have a superstar in one skill set that you just haven't got them in that skill set yet. And you're not really going to figure it out unless you give them some different opportunities to do that and maybe challenge them once in a while. So I think that those are really good points in terms of, yes, promoting technical growth and technical professionals at a high level, but also letting them know, hey, you're nervous about management? You could always try it on a project and see how it works out. And then have the support there and, and just that honest trustful conversation that it's okay to back down this ladder and go the other direction. There's no shame in that. All right, Matt. So let's switch gears a little bit here. I know that you do a lot of work in the infrastructure world and recently the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act bill has been passed and it's a, a monumental bill, trillion dollars of funding. It's going to be dripped out to each of the states across the country. From your perspective, where you sit in your firm, what are you thinking about the bill in terms of how it's going to impact the industry or company? How are you preparing for that? There's still a lot of pieces and questions about this to be answered. So big bill of $550 billion in new money, you know, compared to the prior bill, the FAST Act. And there's going to be some changes in the industry because of this. The workflow should be a little bit more consistent than maybe in the past with continuing resolutions and budgets that didn't quite address the needs. So when this bill came out, we were obviously in this industry pretty excited, not just because of the business aspects, but because I think when you're in the civil engineering profession, you really are interested in your communities and, and you see the work that needs to happen, whether it's on the water and wastewater side or the ground transportation or airports or wherever it is. We want to solve problems and it takes money to do that. One thing that we're really worried about now is the erosion of, you know, due to inflation that is happening in the construction industry related to this. It's going to take a chunk out of that new money. It's going to take a little bit of the shine off of that. We had seen numbers creeping up for a couple of years. The pandemic certainly didn't help. The new bill gets passed. There's a lot of energy, a lot of new programming of projects by state agencies or owners of water resource type of facilities. 
And uh, now we're starting to see maybe a little bit of backpedaling where, oh boy, costs have gone up so much. We, we thought we might be able to do these new projects, but maybe we can't do all of them. Or agencies are seeing zero bids on projects. The labor market and the material supplies in the construction industry are really hampering maybe what this bill could have done. So I think the jury is out a little bit on what the impact is. Now you asked how we're preparing for it. We're definitely going to see an uptick. And we are preparing for it with training, with um, hiring of entry-level engineers. The, the labor market is extremely tough for experienced engineers. And these bills affect every engineering firm. So they're all looking at, in the same directions, the same pool for people. So what we've tried to do is be pretty aggressive on the entry-level hiring, early career hiring. We've got some people that are working on some training programs to try to bring those people up to speed a little bit more in, in maybe a, a more consistent way throughout the firm. So whether someone's in one discipline or another, maybe we create some common languages, create a team, you know, a 2022 team of new engineers that maybe they'll stick together for a while in their career type thing. We're definitely trying to staff up. Our backlog had been creeping up pretty significantly over the past few years anyway, and we run pretty lean, but we do see the opportunities there and we're really seeing upticks for us in the uh, water resources field and also in ground transportation too. So there's more to come on that. And there's other money floating around out there too, the ARPA and Build Back Better regional challenges and lots of different funding programs. It's almost tough to keep track of and, and keep your clients informed about, but there is a growth opportunity. But one thing that is a challenge for us, and it's, it's the industry, and I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, is the field of applicants, the field of uh, potential teammates is, is shrinking. I also am adjunct faculty for University of New Hampshire civil engineering program and sit on the advisory board there too. And enrollments in civil engineering have gone down over the last few years. So that's at a time when we need more new graduates that we're, we're actually seeing enrollments, more people going into computer sciences and mechanical engineering as opposed to civil engineering. So we've got some challenges here and you know, talking with others in the industry, started to hear about AI and machine learning and how do you maybe make up hours with technology as opposed to the bodies that we might not be able to find. And those are things that we haven't really got into too deeply here yet. We might have to consider it. You mentioned intern programs. We started a pretty formalized intern program about six years ago. That's been good for us. We've had interns in between junior and senior year in, in their college curriculum, and then in between senior year and graduate school, perhaps, or maybe full-time. And that's yielded us some long-term teammates now. So that's helped us. I'm glad we, we started that several years ago. We've got a program right now, Anthony, called 30 and 3. We're trying to hire 30 entry-level engineers in the next three years. So this is our first year of that. It's one of those things that we saw as a necessity. I wish we started about two years earlier, but the pandemic was a tough time for hiring a lot of new teammates that, that might not see each other in person. So there's some challenges. Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard from any company that's not having the same challenge in terms of hiring. It's a systemic issue in the industry. Like you said, we're not graduating as many civil engineers as we used to, but you were getting more work than we ever did before. Any engineer can tell that that equation doesn't match up and that equation is not going to work out in the best way. So Part of this from an industry standpoint is we do need to get out there more to the elementary schools and different communities. And to your point, it's planning ahead. It's thinking about technology. There's different things that all firms should be doing right now for sure. And, and going on that a little bit in terms of technology, well, we're still going through COVID to a sense, but we went through part of 
everything with COVID, where a lot of firms were 90 to 100% remote for some period of time back in 2020. Talk about how Coyle Tanner has, where are you at now? Is there a mix between home and work remote? How do you see that going forward for your firm? How are you handling that kind of hybrid environment? We handled it well. And uh, it was a scary time initially for us. And I was worried about how we might even survive a few months when the pandemic first hit. But our team really rallied more than I could have ever thought. We've accepted and embraced. We embraced the normalization of remote work. And a friend of mine has coined it now or is a success from anywhere type of thing. And we're embracing it. I would say that on any given day, Anthony, we probably have about 30% of our team members co- go to an office, one of our offices. It's a different 30% every day. So some people, we've given a tremendous amount of flexibility. That's the real answer is we came up with a telework policy and we just asked people to try to commit to something so that their teammates knew when they might be in or out, but we didn't judge what that was. So we didn't say you had to be in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or you had to be in Tuesday, Thursday, or you had to be in three days a week or two days, whatever. We somewhat discouraged zero days a week, but even still, I think there's some people that are doing that and it's okay. We really had to overcome that stigma too, that it's okay to have that flexibility and that mix. And what's really made that work is just the dedication of the team. It's not a policy. It's not anything that's come down from a corporate standpoint. It's really the dedication of the team to the clients, to each other, to their projects that's made it work. So a lot of virtual meetings. One thing that's tough, I think, for a lot of firms is you worry about the camaraderie, the the water cooler talk. How do you replicate that? How do you replace that? And one thing that we have continually worried about, too, is you get new players, new teammates that come in that don't know the personalities of their team. Are they going to embrace becoming part of the team? Are they going to feel like they're part of the family and that might keep them around until their retirement? And also, everybody works a little bit differently. And if you don't get to know somebody on a little bit of a more personal level, do you really know how to work with them completely? So I think those are challenges that we're, we have no choice except to overcome them and figure it out. But so far, so good for us. Just a lot of flexibility as we've come through the first couple of years of this pandemic. Hopefully, the worst of it is behind us. You keep hearing about new surges and, and whatnot. But we put a committee together of four of us immediately when the pandemic started. And, and we really dove in and tried to make sure everybody was okay. Tried to make sure that their environment, their work at Hoyle Tanner was the most stable thing in their lives because everything else was going crazy. And people didn't know if kids were going to school, if their spouse might lose their employment, they might have sick family members, all kinds of things to worry about. And what we really tried to do was just make sure that they understood that we were doing everything possible to make this the simplest part of their existence. We gave stipends for to set up home offices so that you know, initially we said, take anything you want home, take your computer, take your monitors, take your chair, whatever you want, take it all home. And then when we got to a point last year where things settled down a little bit, we said, listen, we need that stuff back. We'd like to see you in the office a little bit, but then The issue is, well, are they going to lug it back and forth every day? And we saw that as a barrier. And we said, well, okay, we'll give you a stipend so you can set up two offices. You set up one at your home. We don't want receipts or anything. Just do what you need to do. If you need to buy a desk, a monitor, work with our IT department, find out what you need to do to replicate what you have at Hoyle Tanner and in your home office. Just Just tell us you need the money. We'll give you the money. So people did that and really set up some nice home offices. 
Now they can go back and forth freely. That works really well for them. I think that was appreciated. That's great. Sounds like you guys have really gone out of your way to make sure that people feel comfortable in their ability to work and do wherever they are, which is a great thing. How many employees roughly does Royal Tanner have? Yeah, we're about 106 different offices. So some of the offices are pretty small, uh, five people. Our largest office is about 50 people. So going back to that, the hybrid work and the remote work, in terms of flexibility, and that's great that you're giving them that flexibility. Is it something where it's kind of like they work it out with their managers every week? Is there like somewhere where they're signing up for certain days in certain offices? Or how does that look? I'm just curious in terms of how you're handling that. That's really flexible as well. So we leave that up to the coordination with their supervisor and their team. We don't mandate anything. We don't even care which offices they go to. If they want to travel to different offices, we don't necessarily have a setup for them. So they might be just working off their laptop if they go to some place that isn't their home office. We don't really keep track of which days and all that. We really want to put the burden and the accountability on the team and the teammates to make sure it works for them supervisor and the employee really have the ultimate decision-making on how that works. And, you know, amazingly, it's gone really well. You know, every once in a while you, you hear the, well, they're never in or those types of things. Boy, I wish they were in the office. I'd really like, well, I know we are where we are. And if we were to try to clamp down and push, I don't think that would be good for us, for our staffing, because there's plenty of places that offer a lot of flexibility. We're just trying to make the flexibility work and go with that success from anywhere mentality. See, we make that work because I think we have to. Another thing too, I mean, out of this, we just hired back an employee five years ago. She left and moved to Utah and she used to work in our Florida office. So once we became more involved in the remote work and the success from anywhere, we reached back out to her. And at the time, it felt like she had to divorce herself from the firm. Now we said, you can work in Utah. She's come back on board and it's working out great. We've grown up a little bit from that perspective where we don't necessarily have to see you in person every day, but we knew you were a great employee. Uh, you had to leave at the time and it seemed like it had to be a divorce. Well, let's get back together. That's a little bit of a success story for us. And a positive outcome of the remote work. That's one strategy or approach that some of the companies that we've talked to are trying to use to overcome the hiring challenge, right? If there's a shortage of engineers in your geographic reason, well, now we all know that we can work from anywhere. So maybe able to expand our hiring pool, at least geographically, without necessarily opening up an office across the country at some point. So that's definitely a positive. And I think one of the things that you said there, I think is really important. You didn't say it this way, but I will, is that you essentially you have to adapt or you're going to die out. That's just survival. I mean, that goes for any industry across any line. And a couple of, I think maybe a year or so ago now, I did an article on LinkedIn where I did a lot of research. And I know not everyone out there might be baseball fans, but there's a baseball team, the Tampa Bay Rays, that traditionally has the lowest payroll in the league, or one of them, and traditionally also has the highest number of wins in the league. Whenever you see a pattern like that, it's always interesting to explore. So I must have read 50 to 100 articles about them. And the bottom line is they adapted quite a bit. They tried all kinds of different things. And no one else was doing putting four people in the outfield, which you never do, starting a pitcher from one inning and then switching to another pitcher. And now, a couple of years later, pretty much every team is doing what they're doing. So the point is, is that if you see other people are doing it, like Matt said, so you have to adapt, you have to be flexible. I think that's just a general good practice in life and in business, really in any line of business. And I'm happy to see engineering companies doing that. And one thing, I, and the reason I asked Matt before, the number of employees, because I do understand also that the hybrid work environment and what goes into it is very different for 
based on the number of employees you have. I mean, if you have 100 employees, Matt explained the potential solution that's working for them. If you have 1,000 employees, the same may not work. I mean, we talked to some companies that are large, and what they're trying to do is people aren't coming to the office as much anymore. They can't really be paying rent on all these different buildings. So maybe they're downsizing in their shared workspaces and there's more, you log on, you reserve your desk. So they're definitely different things and different companies have to take different approaches. Fundamentally across the industry, most companies are generally flexing relatively well. And I think in an industry where in 2019, if you asked the company to go 100% remote overnight, they would have laughed at you and said, our company's going under. But a year later, pretty much Every civil engineering company that I know was working remote almost 90% of the time. So when push comes to shove, I think we can make adjustments. And I think another positive out of COVID is that we've seen companies be able to do that in a big way. So that's definitely a positive. All right. So Matt, let me ask you this question. We talked a lot about hiring and that's a challenge right now. Every company's facing that challenge. What are some of the things that you do at Hoyle Tanner or you have done to attract these entry-level engineers? You mentioned now you're going to try to hire another 30 in three years. What is your approach on that or whatever you can share with us? You know, as far as differentiation, we're a medium-sized firm. Pretty much everybody at the firm knows each other's names. We try to use that to our advantage, maybe over large firms where I'm not trying to disparage or anything, but maybe you're more of a number in a large outfit. You know, one of the things that a small firm like us does that is we do a lot of projects right around our houses. We pretty much work where we live and play. We can point to a lot of things that if you join us, you'll be making a difference right, right in this locale. We're not a national firm. We don't work on projects. We pretty much don't work on projects where we don't have offices. People get to see the results of their work, which that matters to some, maybe not to others. Being a little bit of a smaller firm, there's potentially the opportunity for a little more one-on-one mentoring or coaching. I think larger firms can offer that too in the right circumstances as well. So retention and attraction is tough. We try to play the cards that we have. We're not too big that we won't know who you are, but we're big enough that we get into a lot. We can work on complicated projects. We can work on important projects with a team where everyone will know who you are and care about you. And those are the things that we try to leverage as much as we can. Pretty good energy, pretty good culture. I find that some of our younger engineers are our best salespeople with regard to bringing in new employees if they're at the uh, early career stage. So we really try to utilize our flag waivers that are in that zero to five range. Who's a better salesperson to a, someone coming right out of school than someone who's only been with the firm or in the industry even a few years? I really like it. I get to go hiking. I live here. I did this project. I drove across it and talked to my dad about it. Or, those types of things might be differentiators for us. It's hard. There's no silver bullet for us either. It's difficult. Last year, we started in October career fairs and tried to have offers out in November and December. And even still, you know, that was hard. And we had some fall through and tough negotiations this year, you know, even with entry level people. And I mentioned I'm, I'm in, uh, I spend a little bit of time, very part time in academia as well. I help with the senior project capstone class at University of Hampshire. So I'm, I'm with these students and I ask them throughout the year, who's already employed? And boy, you'd be amazed the difference from five years ago. A lot of people going to graduate school five years ago, four years ago. Now, most go right into the workforce because they see the opportunities and they'll, they'll pick up the education later, perhaps. It's very different right now. They see the opportunities out in the field and uh, they've become tough negotiators. Most of them are employed before their second semester senior year even starts. It's very, very different right now. So try to get there early, try to get them involved. 
if you do have offices near universities and they've got the capstone program, get involved at the University of New Hampshire this year. We stopped counting, but out of 80 seniors, there were more than 20 that were directly hired by their project sponsor. You know, a firm that they were working on, working with that had sponsored a project and, you know, an educational opportunity to design a bridge project or something like that. They work with them and we've characterized it as like a six month job interview. And uh, many of the firms just hired those teams, hired the people on those teams. So that was a real, real direct way for some firms to basically have an internship without paying a dime. We're going to touch on the three biggest questions for engineers and their careers in this podcast. We already touched on the technical managerial path, which is always one question. Now we've touched on the small firm, big firm question, which is another question that we get all the time from people. And I think to your point, it's a hard thing to answer. I mean, there's benefits to small firms, benefits to big firms. Some big firms I've seen an office in their firm can operate like a small business so you can kind of get the same feel. So it's hard to tell, but I think that there are definitely benefits to both. And Sometimes you need to talk to people at either one to try to make that decision. I definitely worked at a small firm myself and there were benefits and I was able to try a lot of different projects and work with a lot of different people and wear a lot of different hats, which was helpful as a younger professional. And I think the third question that a lot of people would ask is, should I get a master's degree or not? Which is kind of something you briefly touched on there. But me personally, if I'm giving advice to a civil engineer that's trying to make that decision, I would highly recommend getting into industry as early on as possible. You could always get your master's degree part-time in the evenings or weekends or something like that. But the experience is so invaluable. And as a civil engineer, there's so many things you learn on the job that you don't learn in school. It's nothing against school. They just don't have the time to teach you everything. There's certain uh, requirements, ABET requirements they have to go by. I think the earlier you can get experience, the better you're going to get mentors. You're going to learn from them. If you want to get the master's degree, I think it definitely can be a big benefit it can also expedite the time requirements to take your PE exam, which can also be helpful. I would just encourage you, there's so much work out there. There's so much opportunity out there today to delay it for a year to get that experience. It's something that's challenging. And a lot of companies also offer support, financial support on master's degrees and things of that nature. So I would definitely explore that before just deciding to stay at school for one more year, because I think there's just so many good learning opportunities out there today. So we covered a lot here with Matt. Like I said, I think we covered some big decisions that you can make in your career. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to put Matt on the civil engineering hot seat and pepper him with a couple of last career-related questions before we wrap up. We'll be back in just a minute. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, we're back with Matt Lowe. Matt is a licensed professional engineer, senior vice president of Oil Tanner and Associates. And Matt, it's time for the civil engineering hot seat. You ready? I'm ready. All right, Matt, do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, maybe you have a morning routine or a lunchtime routine or just something you do consistently on a daily basis that has contributed to your success. I am a routine guy. So uh, yeah, I've been, my alarm clock's been set to the same time for about 30 years. So I try to get up every day with a positive attitude and a fresh start. I have a lot of stressful days, like a lot of people do, and I try to put it behind me try to come in every day. It, sometimes it's hard. I'm a, also a list guy. I like to make lists at the beginning of the week, beginning of the day. I like to see some progress on some of those things. Positive attitude. That's my routine, the best I can anyway. What is one book that maybe in your career that you found very useful? I know we read a lot of books or you might hear a lot of things over your career. But sometimes one book or one philosophy or something stands out that you may have carried with you that you could pass along to others. Is there anything that stands out to you? There have been several that have been more recent have actually been impactful to me. 
One of your guests a few weeks ago mentioned good to great, the whole flywheel concept and the hedgehog concept and the window in the mirror. If anybody hasn't read that, read it. It's uh, especially if you want to advance into the executive, the business part of your career. That's a real good one. A book that I'm finishing up right now is called Extreme Ownership, and it's written by two Navy SEALs. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, Anthony, but... Jocko. Yeah, Jocko and Leaf. I look at some of the similarities in what is said there compared to good to great and building the right team and first who, then what, that type of thing, and no excuses. I really like the way that a lot of the concepts in that book come together with good to great. And I'll just mention a third one too. This one's by Jack Welch, the real life MBA. It's a, a good book, former CEO of GE, real crash course in CEO leadership, speaking with candor, those types of things, building winning teams, real influential. Thinking about your managers going through your career, man, you don't have to name names specifically, but just think about your favorite manager or managers. What was it that made them your favorite? We're trying to understand what makes for great managers in the engineering world. The best managers that I had held me accountable, but kept things simple. Didn't overcomplicate things. I mean, the, the business itself is you win projects, you execute them, you move on to the next. It's not super, super difficult. From that perspective, it gets complicated the more you get into the weeds. But I think my the managers that really kept things simple for me, tried to keep some of the noise out that can really get you off track, keeping things simple. And the people that really professed teamwork were important to me. All right, I've got one final question for you, Matt. We call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with, let's say, a younger civil engineer, recent graduate, and you had about 30 to 40 seconds with that person, what career advice would you give them in that short amount of time based on your experience to date? Good advice that was given to me a long time ago was you earn your salary between eight and five and you earn your career advancement before and after that. And I've lived by that the whole time. Get involved in professional societies. Do things to invest in yourself. Don't expect your company to pay for every minute that you're learning things. So get involved in societies, write papers, make presentations at conferences, network, get involved in all those types of things. I think it's super important. You can sit at your desk from eight to five and you can have a, a good career. But as far as career advancement, particularly into executive level type thing, you've got to do more than that. And it's not all going to be on your timesheet. You've got to be your number one supporter to do that. And I don't think you have to leave your organization to do that. I think you just invest in yourself. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get an argument from a guy who titled his book, Engineer Your Own Success. That's pretty much uh, the bottom line. And I will say, and I've probably heard me say this a million times on the podcast, because I've heard it a million times from people, getting active in these associations, not just going online and becoming a member, but actually getting on a committee, getting involved in event planning or some initiative with that association is where you build relationships and where you build career opportunities. So, you know, it's, it goes beyond just membership. It's active membership and active leadership in these different endeavors that I think can really be the best and really help you in your career. So, Matt, thanks so much for taking some time with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Anthony. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matt Lowe. When I asked him to do the interview, we didn't talk about those three questions at all that I mentioned up front. Should I get a master's degree or not? What are the differences between working for a small or large engineering organization? And should I stay on the technical track or go into the managerial side of things? 
But we ended up kind of discussing all three of them, which is great because those are the most common questions that we receive. So I did hope that you found this episode helpful. Maybe you want to share it with someone. You can refer them over to civilengineeringpodcast.com. And, you know, would absolutely love to for them to get this information and utilize it in their career. I also want to remind you that if your company is in need of project management training or they want us to help you build a custom PM program that is specific to your verbiage, your templates, your company, we can do that. We could do it relatively quickly. You can visit our website, engineeringmanagementinstitute.org, click the contact us button, or just give us a call, 800-920-4007. Again, that's 800-920-4007. Please remember, you can always find the show notes for these episodes at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There you will find a summary of all episodes, including this one. The summary includes key points discussed in the episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.